Hello, welcome back to the Female Founded World Podcast. It's Jasmine here. I'm the host of the pod and I facilitate all of the workshops and community events that we host at Female Founder World. Today, I'm having a conversation about funding and fundraising and how to raise money for your business and also how to determine whether you even should be raising money for your business. And that conversation is with Nisha Dua. She's a managing partner and co-founder of BBG Ventures. She is a huge supporter of female founders, an investor, and an amazing wealth of knowledge on this topic. So let's jump into the episode. Nisha, welcome to the show. The first thing I love to do when any guest joins me is just to let them tell their story in their own words. So could you let us know um, a little bit about what you're working on and your path to BBG Ventures? Sure. So I'm the co-founder and managing partner of an early stage venture fund called BBG Ventures. We invest in female-led companies at the pre-seed and seed stage, and we're backing companies that we think are built by founders who intuitively understand the consumer they're going after and are transforming big arenas of the consumer economy that demand what we call human-centered transformation. Um, and typically that's in areas where we think there are broken systems like health and well-being, the future of work and education, uh, climate-friendly consumption, and products and services for um, overlooked consumers or emerging consumers. Uh, My path to venture capital has been a little bit windy. I don't think when I started doing law right out of school in Australia that I thought I would end up being an investor, but um, I was very much in search of kind of being around new businesses or the business dynamics, kind of my whole windy path to VC. So I was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer who was terribly bored by documents, um, jumped over to management consulting at a company called Bain and uh, got to really build a toolkit as as we advised sort of the CEOs and senior leadership of Fortune 500 companies. I then moved over to the States from Australia and found myself working for a company called AOL, which we'll all remember as the dial-up internet sort of that that enabled us to get on the internet in in high school. But um, for me, I didn't realize the company still existed, but took this opportunity to work with a really seasoned CEO, a woman named Susan Line. Um, I ran strategy and operations for a 40-brand website portfolio. And over that time, I also took over my own website there, um, a millennial celebrity gossip website. Um, And so learned a lot about sort of growth hacking, um, what to do with very little budget. Some of the things that startup founders start to experience. I launched my own startup, a platform called Built by Girls, which is a consumer platform that uses an algorithm to match young women interested in tech with professionals all over the country to help them build their first networks. Um, And then I launched BBG Ventures actually with my then boss, Susan Line, um, while we were at AOL in 2014. And now we're three funds in, and our latest fund is a $50 million fund to invest in these female-led companies. Incredible. So much to unpack there. Um, Could you, for people who aren't familiar with BBG Ventures, could you maybe let people know a few of the companies that you're invested in that they they might be more familiar with? Yeah. So we've been really interested in, as I mentioned, finding these founders who are tackling a problem that they too have experienced. So um, some of you might be familiar with 
the feminine hygiene brand or period company Lola. Uh, Lola built that company because they felt like all our period products were completely out of date and they wanted something that was um, both natural and that spoke to them as consumers. And now they're entering the sexual wellness space as well. Uh, we're also in a company called Zola, which if you've been going to weddings lately, particularly after the COVID lull, it's been the summer of weddings, you may have used a Lola wedding registry or seen a, a Lola website. Uh, Zola, uh, those two always turn me around. Um, and that's a universal wedding registry so that you can shop from anywhere on the internet for the couple who's getting married and they can have that delivered to them anytime they want. And And that's a really unique um, company because they don't hold inventory. So really smart business model. Uh, we're also in a number of health companies. We're in a company called Real, which you might be familiar with. They're the mental health company for millennials that delivers both one-on-one therapy and group therapy all asynchronously. So you can get access to therapy for the very affordable price of $28 a month but also whenever you need it and not just for that sort of expensive one-on-one hour-long session uh, with a therapist. So I could go into many, many examples, but maybe some of them will pop up when we when we talk today. Awesome. One of the first things that I think um, you're really great at kind of when people ask you about raising money is kind of directing them to ask the question, should you actually be raising money? And is that something that you need to be doing? Is that the right path for your business? What are some of the things that a founder should be evaluating when they're thinking about whether or not raising money is the right thing to do? Yeah, I'm asking yourself that question, I think, is the most important question because um, I think becoming a quote-unquote startup founder has become a very popular term and you can run a business without getting startup investment. You can run a really successful business that will make you a lot of money without that. So the questions I like to ask founders or have them ask themselves as they're thinking about whether they should go and raise from a fund like ours or even angel investors is, are you interested in long-term stable growth and profitability or are you thinking about really fast top-line revenue, uh, very high growth potential um, as your goal for the business? And that's important because on the first example, you're really sort of saying, okay, I want to grow within sort of some really steady limits that feel comfortable for me. Um, and in fact, I want to own most of my company. On the other hand, you're saying, actually, I'm really happy to try and get as big, as fast as possible. I've got a really high tolerance for risk and failure. Um, and over time, I'm happy or I feel okay with the fact that I may own less and less of my company and have or work with investors to set milestones that, that could be quite challenging to meet. And so it's important to ask yourself those questions, but it's important to look at it from the perspective of investors and the investment market as well, because the key question in that second group, the group of startups that are high growth, um, that an investor is looking at when they're thinking about whether to back you is, is there some new technology or business model here that this company requires to scale fast and reach that high growth potential. And so they're really asking, what is here that makes uh, whatever this company is doing repeatable and scalable? So it's important not only to ask yourself those questions, you know, for, for you, but 
but from the perspective of the investor as well, because I think that can be quite a um, a bit of a rude awakening that some founders can take quite personally when they hear that a venture investor isn't interested in investing in their type of business. So what are some of the um, different types of funding sources that founders should consider? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's really a spectrum. And if I were to start with kind of that first bucket on, you know, that I described, uh, growing comfortably, looking to get to profitability, those entrepreneurs often start their companies, frankly, with their personal savings or by splitting some of the startup costs on credit cards. Uh, Some other ideas are, particularly if you have a a scientific element or a research element to your company grants, there are a lot of non-dilutive grants depending on the industry that you're in. Um, I think crowdfunding can be a really interesting source of capital for these early businesses. Now, I'm not, you know, you could go and Kickstarter, but today there are actually even more platforms that are designed for the early stage entrepreneur. So I really love iFundWomen. There's another platform called Hello Alice that has a lot of resources uh, that can direct you to sort of small business loans, for example. Um, And then friends and family, right? A very small amount of capital, I think, can come from, I hate calling it friends and family because you might say, well, I don't have that sort of friends and family. But maybe it's, you know, people you've previously worked with who are dabbling in angel investment, right? Or someone you consider an expert who you've developed a relationship with, they can all fall into into that bucket. The second category, if you're raising money from venture investors, you typically start with um, maybe some angel investment. Um, and again, they are those people who might be experts in your industry that you've worked with previously. You can also consider starting off in an accelerator and incubator. They will get you off the ground with maybe 150, 200K. Uh, they do typically take often 7% of your business, but the, um, the introductions and the launch pad that they can provide can be quite valuable. And that's then when you'll think of going on to a tr- more traditional venture capital fund um, at the pre-seed stage if you're pre-product or at the seed stage if you already have a product. Do you have any advice on how, you mentioned introductions there, but do you have any advice on how founders who maybe don't have, you know, a large network in this space can be introduced to an investor in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think my advice actually is to start building that network as early as you can. So um, it does take a little bit of digging, right, to I think it's hardest when you sort of say, like, I don't even know this ecosystem, let alone how to crack into it. And I felt that way, actually, coming from Australia. Um, But, you know, one really great place to start is Twitter. There are a lot of investors on Twitter, and you can start to learn a little bit about them, what events they're speaking at, which founders they've backed. There are also a number of newsletters that you can subscribe to, like Strictly VC, Term Sheet, um, they all, oh, and Axios, they all cover a lot of recent funding. So then you can start to see, all right, this investor backed this company, they're interested in this arena. That can help sort of narrow where you should start with your network. And so I think there are a couple of ways in. One is 
networking with founders. So don't underestimate the power of your founder community to get you that really important introduction, as well as experts in your industry. They often all know each other. And so it's more about cracking that outer perimeter of who who knows who. And the minute you meet one person, that turns into helping you meet everyone you need to know. Um, I also think then maybe being able to be in an event that an investor is speaking at, going up, introducing yourself after. It's okay if that doesn't turn into a pitch meeting, right, in the first few minutes. But then reaching out to that investor cold or after you've met them in an event. So I, I really like to think about it as almost creating a halo effect. You know, you see them at an event, you introduce yourself, they get an email from you. Another founder they know says, oh, have you met Jasmine? She's working on this really interesting thing. And before you know it, the investor's thinking, wow, this person is everywhere. I, I really need to meet them. And um, in terms of actually targeting the right kind of investor, like what are some of the things that someone should be, a founder should be thinking about when they're trying to determine whether an investor is the right person to partner with? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's another thing that feels pretty hard to to crack when you're not in the thick of it. Um, What's important to know is every investor plays at a different stage. So if you're just starting off, you want to make sure that this is a very early stage investor that specifically does pre-seed and seed stage, right? Around the time you're just launching your product or you've just launched and you have a little bit of traction, maybe you want to be raising between one to $5 million, depending on the type of company. So checks and, and their check size within that is really important. The second thing is, what are their areas of focus? So if you have a consumer business, but you talk to um, someone who invests in B2B or software as a service, not a great fit. And similarly, you know, because I think uh, many of your followers might be um, in the beauty industry, for example, because you've got these incredible brands and I know a lot of people come to you for advice, but it even gets kind of um, more specific, right? So not every consumer investor will be investing in beauty. So really doing your research on the investor, figuring out, okay, what investments have they made previously? Um, Are they still actively talking about that area as an area of interest if they have done a similar company to yours before? Uh, do they have a couple of those companies or do they just have one? Is that an indicator that they might consider your company um, a competitor, for example? So not not always the easiest information to find just from sleuthing on Twitter or Googling. Um, but again, another reason to try and sort of start building these relationships with other founders who will often kind of have the inside gossip on, on where an investor is really focused. Mm. What are some of, you know, aside from obviously the investment and um, that piece of things, what are some of the other benefits that founders could be looking for to kind of get from bringing a new VC on board? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it certainly it certainly depends on the investor, but the way we like to structure our relationships at BBG is that you're not just getting financial capital, but you're getting human capital, relationship capital. Um, so it's really our job to help you figure out how can you supercharge your company from day one. And, and we try and actually start doing that 
even when we're diligencing a company, um, one of the hardest parts of this business is not getting to invest in every great founder you meet. But we can be offering introductions um, or advice and feedback even during those pitch meetings. Um, but as we onboard a founder, we actually give them a survey to ask, you know, what is it you need most right now? Who are your most critical hires? Uh, what are your dream introductions? What is the arena you need to dig into the most? And then over the first 12 months after we invest, we really dive into um at least depending on the need, uh, all the different aspects of company building. So do you need help on your consumer marketing strategy, connections to PR, for example? Can we help get you on panels to increase your founder profile? Or on the other hand, do you need help thinking about the business strategy? So what your pricing model should be or your financial model and your projections um, all the way up to sort of where it's our job to to really help hand you off maybe to the next investor but helping you raise that that next round of money going through your pitch deck with you making introductions so um, a really great investor should be able to speak to their experience in a lot of those arenas and be clear on how how they can offer that help over time you spoke about, you know, all these different areas where investors can add value. And I'm guessing that would differ depending on like where the, what the founder's background is. Have you found that there is, um, you know, a certain kind of professional background that makes for a better founder, a certain kind of experience earlier in life that makes for a better founder, anything along those lines that you look for now? Yeah. I mean, that's such a great question around professional experience. We're really interested, I think, in breaking the mold of what or investing in founders who are breaking the mold of, of what the founder has traditionally looked like. And I think it's fair to say that to date in Silicon Valley, you know, with 98% of funding going to male-led companies, founders have looked a very particular way. Yeah. And, <laughs> and very often that, that has been sort of like the Stanford engineering hoodie-wearing, Mark Zuckerberg kind of founder. And I think if if we want to get capital to many, many different people, um, it's really important that as investors we're actually looking past, okay, they went to Harvard Business School or they went to Stanford and they did systems design, you know, and on all these classes that we think make a great founder. So what we're really looking for is attributes. Is this a founder who has a big vision and is kind of mapping a new world, uh, but they bring with that vision um, a really healthy amount of ability to execute? So they don't just come with an idea, but they can put it into action. Um, are they a great storyteller? Can they tell the story of their company, not just to their customers, but to the people they're hiring and to potential investors? Um, are they always three steps ahead of me? So when I'm asking questions, they might not have all the answers, but they're thinking about all the different ways this, this could play out. Um, are they a talent magnet, right? Can they attract the best people they need, the A players, to work with them? Um, and and to tie it back to your question about professional experience, do they have some sort of superpower that is derived from their prior relevant experience? 
that will be particularly helpful to helping this company succeed. So not so much that there's a sort of a one size fits all, you know, ex-management consultants can do this or, you know, someone who went to Stanford can do this or someone who worked at Google in engineering. Um, It is true that many of those people will bring special superpowers because of their experience, but in aid of what company is really the question. Um, so, you know, we're, we're obviously looking to wrap that into all those personality attributes that uh, make an entrepreneur, right, resilience and flexibility and grit. But we, we almost have sort of, I think I listed almost eight or nine things, right, that we're, that we're looking for in, in what make, might make a great founder. I want to switch gears a little bit and um, get your thoughts on exactly what a founder should have prepared before they have a meeting. So what kind of material should they have prepared and what should they, you know, what should they know for sure before they go into these meetings? Yeah, absolutely. So I recommend you have at least two things, a version of a pitch deck, even if you don't think that you will be presenting that deck and a business model, like a financial model. You probably won't go through a financial model in a meeting, but it really helps to have that sort of under your belt. Um, so I'll start with the pitch deck. And we've we've talked about this a little bit before, but pitch decks should really be seeking to answer three questions. Why this product? Why now? And why you or why you and your team? So there are lots of sub things that can go into that pitch deck, but that's sort of really what I want to walk away understanding from the story you tell me, whether it's in the deck or it's one-on-one. I want to know that your product is so unique and differentiated that it's going after a really large market and that that market, there's some ability to take advantage of something that's happening in that market, right? A changing consumer preference, um, you know, introduction of a new technology. And then I want to know that you and your team are uniquely qualified to to get out there first and and to win in this market. So um, I've listed a few things there, but, you know, defining the product and the market size, uh, really being clear on why your product is different and what your advantage is, talking about your team. If you are in market, any traction you've had. If you're not in market, you can describe traction as, okay, I did a survey with 500 people. Here's what they told me. I'm seeing demand or I created a wait list and I'm already getting people to sign up for this. Um, And then always talk about your competition because there's always competition, even if it's a new product, right? There's always the way we've been doing this uh, forever. You know, people who use Airtable, Airtable would have said, well, it's people hacking together to-do lists and Google Sheets, right? So, and then finally, you should really know what it is you want to do with any capital that you raise if if you're there to have a um, conversation about raising. So really important to know where where the most important parts of the business are to spend to grow. I'm super curious to know, you know, as someone who I'm sure you're seeing new companies come across your desk all the time, like what space is really interesting to you at the moment? Yeah. So 
Well, all the areas I listed (laughs) earlier, but um, the one I'm most interested in right now is actually consumer health or digital health. Um, And we've been investing in this space ever since we started the first fund. Um, But we're really interested in companies that we think are building new solutions to enable, um, well, I was about to say Americans, but you and I are both Australian. Uh, so let's 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 say to, to enable anyone to be, you know, more proactive about their health and think about health, being healthy in a preventative way too. So I'm most interested in companies um, that are using data to enable that. So what is the level of personalization we can get to so that every individual can have the best standard of care for them? So an example of that um, is a company we invested in called Spring Health. They're a precision mental health company. They have one of the largest databases of proprietary mental health data across tens of thousands of patients. And that enables them to build algorithms to hear what your needs are, what my needs are when it comes to finding a mental health professional and connect us with someone that might be a more appropriate fit for us rather than going through that experience that's full of friction where you're like, oh, I don't like this therapist, they're not quite right for me, now I've got to try someone else. And what they've been able to show through this process is um, there is actually higher efficacy through this matching process for getting people to good outcomes uh, by matching them with the right therapist. So we love to see data-driven companies that are clinically backed, um, even if it's in the natural space, uh, knowing that an ingredient is clinically backed can be really valuable. So we're in a sh- company called Sugar Break, um, that it is, it's a new blood sugar management system. It's non-prescription. Um, you can go and get it at Target and it helps pre-diabetics and diabetics regulate their blood sugar, all made from natural ingredients. And, you know, I think it's one in three Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic. And many of us would actually like take back, like to take back our relationship with sugar. So um, it's actually a product that that many of us can use. So really interested in um, companies trying to solve problems, you know, still for women's health, also for, I think, chronic conditions, autoimmune conditions is a big area of opportunity as well. So, you know, anything that's driving access, affordability, using data to enable, you know, people to be healthier and for a more affordable price. The last question that I love to ask everyone who comes on the show is just to give a recommendation for a resource. So that could be a community that you're part of, a book, a podcast, someone that you follow, um, that you think that anyone who's interested in this space should go and check out? Yeah. If you are even thinking of raising money, you must read this book called Venture Deals. It's by Brad Feld. He's a very well-respected investor. He's based in Denver, Colorado. Um, And I think the subtitle of the book is something like... uh, know your deals better than your lawyer. And so he goes into all the tactical nitty gritty of um, what's in a term sheet, what's in an agreement. It will really help you understand 
what agreement are you getting into or what are the right words to use pre-money valuation, post-money valuation? Um, how does that affect your ownership after you take a round of funding from an investor? And what I love about how tactical this book is, is he actually breaks it down into, you know, this is what it looks like from the founder's perspective and this is what it looks like from the VC's perspective. So you can get the real inside scoop on not only the jargon but how you should be negotiating to to get the best deal for you. Oh, that's a great one. Um, Nisha, thank you so much for coming on the show and for all of your insights today. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Hey, did you guys love that? If you did, please drop us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you take a screenshot of that review and DM it to us on Instagram, we will send you back a link with free access to our entire on-demand library of business skills workshops. So don't sleep on that. Get on it. Take that screenshot and DM it over to us. Chat to you later.